0: Thanks for pressing play and welcome to Christopher Lockhead. Follow your different. And if you're new, welcome. And a few things you should know off the top. We are what's called a real dialogue podcast, an unedited, unfettered, unconstrained, real dialogue, an authentic conversation that is unlike what you hear on TV, unlike what you hear on radio, and unlike what you hear on most podcasts that are highly edited, highly produced. And uh, essentially, they spoon feed to you what they want you to hear. That's not what you're about to hear on this podcast. Now, why do real dialogues matter? Well, it turns out that podcasts or oddcasts are the last platform, the last medium for real conversation and dialogue. And this matters today more than ever, because what most people today call a conversation is actually called Waiting to talk. And in the United States, many of us, myself included, believe that we have a dialogue crisis. Just pay attention to what's going on. On any topic that matters, it is getting harder and harder to go beyond the high level and to go deep in a thoughtful, respectful way, particularly in ways that uh, on topics that we might disagree with. In America today, many people won't be friends with others who are different from them, who have different political beliefs or social beliefs from them. And in America today, we don't listen, we yell, and we name call. So if you, like me, value the power of real conversation, of shutting up, of listening, learning, and actually connecting with the legendary people who are making our world a different place, then you are in the right place. Now, on this episode, we all want to live happy lives, successful, long and healthy lives. But the truth is, we will all face multiple crises, crises, crisis. I wonder what the plural of crises is, <laughs> multiple crises situations in our lives that will dramatically challenge us and will change us and who we are when the wheels come off or when the shit hits the fan, in many ways defines who we are. What you're about to hear is a story of challenge, loss, courage, and triumph. And if you're somebody with breasts, or you're someone who loves someone with breasts, this is a very important conversation. And we're releasing it now in part because October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Kat Van Dam is a successful executive in the media business, and she's focused on content for kids and families. About three years ago, doctors told her that she had to have both breasts removed because of cancer. What she did next will surprise and will likely inspire you because she chose a different path. By the end of this dialogue, I think you'll gain some legendary insights into a problem That almost all of us will be touched by breast cancer and cancer. According to the American Cancer Society, one in eight women will have breast cancer. Now, before we go any further, I also want you to know this is not a downer conversation at all. And while, yes, it's about breast cancer, like all legendary conversations, it happens on multiple levels. You see, Kat is not just a cancer surviving successful woman. She's a radical inspiration, and she made a radical choice not to have breast reconstruction and to be, quote, flat and happy, which happens to be the title of her most excellent, deeply researched book that she co-authored with legendary medical professionals. This is a radically different choice, and Kat provides a lens for radical self-awareness, radical self-advocacy and a radical lens for making very tough decisions in life about cancer or about anything else for that matter. And uh, pay special attention to what Kat says when I ask her how cancer has changed her. I think it'll surprise you. Now, my friends at Lomi are the makers of the most legendary new kitchen appliance in at least a decade. You see, Lomi is the world's first smart home composter and it makes food waste a thing of the past. And it it turns out that when what it, what it does is it takes food waste and turns it into some of the most nutrient dense magic dirt in the world in a few hours, unlike traditional composting that takes months. If you have a garden, if you ever composted, I have a garden with a composter outside and it takes months. Unlike that, It happens in hours. Sometimes around here, we actually run Lomi twice a day. So if you think dragging wet, dripping, disgusting bags of food out to your garbage bin is gross, and you want to transform your kitchen from a waste crater into a magic dirt factory, then uh, Lomi is what you want to get involved with here. And you've probably seen their videos on the internet. They're sort of everywhere. And uh, you might have even thought, wow, Lomi sounds amazing but it can't really work. Well, I'm here to tell you, we've had one in our kitchen for several months now, and man, does it work. We love it. And you will too. So if you want to get rid of waste, visit LOmi.com today. That's Lomi.com. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. Well, Kat, it sure is great to see you.
1: It is great to see you, Chris. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. Also, just let me say off the top that I have the fondest of memories of working with your husband, Tony, so many years ago.
1: That is a very mutual feeling. He loves the shit out of you.
0: Please tell Tony that I love the shit out of him back. Will do. And uh, no one can ever take those memories away from
1: us. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The best years of our lives.
0: Well, hopefully the best years of our lives are in front of us, but they were that's fun, right. fun years, that's for sure. Yeah. And, and I have very fond memories of Tony specifically and how amazing he was back then. <laughs> so um, you've been through a lot over the last handful of years.
1: Yeah, look, many, many people have had it a lot worse than I have. I've been through a thing and I decided to do something with that thing. But yeah, this was this was just a little blip on, on the radar, I'd say.
0: Well, maybe a little bit more than a blip. We'll get, we'll get into that in a second. And, you know, the interesting thing is, of course, the longer you're on the planet, the more likely that you're going to encounter things yep. that are not fucking fun at all. Yep. And beyond the normal things, like we're all going to lose our parents. We all lose our parents. That's a horrible thing. And yet it's a, an expected horrible thing. Um, what yeah. you've been through is a less than expected horrible thing.
1: Yeah. Although with one in eight women getting diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetimes, it it maybe shouldn't be so unexpected, you know?
0: Yes. And uh, just this year, I've had two friends Mm. um, uh, have to stick handle through uh, prostate cancer. And so it looks like if you live long enough, if you're female, you're going to get breast cancer. (laughs) If you're male, you're going to get prostate cancer, right? It's sort of yeah. Is almost feeling that way, so um, if you don't mind, and by the way, I don't want to go anywhere you don't want, you don't want to go. So if if it's too much or too personal, just kick me under the table.
1: I'm pretty much an open book, but I will definitely give you the caca if it gets too intense. <laughs>
0: Feel free. Okay. Uh, and and by the way, thank you for your wonderful book.
1: Thank you for for reading my wonderful book.
0: <laughs> it's so important. And you said one one and eight women. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I have several women in my life, uh, it didn't happen this year, but several women in my life in recovery from breast cancer as well.
1: Right, I mean, with odds like that, everybody is going to have someone in their lives, right? Like there's nobody who's not touched by this.
0: So maybe um, take me back to the diagnosis and what that whole um, process was like.
1: Sure. So the first thing I'll say is that I used to have dense breasts. Now I say that with this like, Big slathering of irony because what I had was breasts. I don't know a single woman who hasn't said, "Oh well, I have dense breasts, so I need to do X, Y, and Z." So I took those breasts in for a mammogram, and it showed a big nothing. And then a few months later, I went to see my wonderful primary care doctor, who, when I was in my 20s, had diagnosed me with thyroid cancer. So I, you know, I had a high degree of trust in her. And uh, she found a lump in one of those dense breasts and it was not the first time something lumpy was in there. And so neither of us took it particularly seriously except to say, well, you should probably go get a biopsy. The biopsy turned out to, in fact, be invasive cancer. Uh, went to see a breast surgeon who fortunately suggested that I get an MRI just to make sure there was nothing else lurking in there. It turned out that there was in the other breast also invasive cancer. So, um, in pretty short order, went from, oh, we're just going to do a lumpectomy with radiation, no biggie, to me thinking, hmm, I'm pretty cancery. I should maybe get rid of those breasts. And so decided to do the mastectomy. What's interesting to me about the moment of that transition is my surgeon laying out my options as you can either have a lumpectomy with radiation or you can have a mastectomy with reconstruction. And as you'll note, radiation—that's a medical procedure that is going to help in- improve your odds of survival. Reconstruction is a choice about whether you think you need to have breast mounds in order to feel whole as a human being. And the fact that those were presented as sort of equal op- options to me is very telling.
0: So, please say, say more about what you thought that was telling about.
1: Well, the fact that—and uh, this turns out to be extremely common. You know, I learned later that. Pretty much everybody's surgeon presents it this way, that what should have been presented to me is you can have a lumpectomy and then you'll need to have radiation or you can have a mastectomy and then you'll have some choices to make. You can have reconstruction and there are a couple different options that you can pursue there, or you can decide not to have reconstruction. And that option was never presented to me and it's not presented to most women.
0: Mm -mm. Mm. So the place where you landed, which is, I'm just not going to have breasts. Yeah was not an option presented to you?
1: Not at all. And in fact, it was not an option that was encouraged when I said to my surgeon, you know, I think I just want to go flat. And I I didn't know a lot about it at the time because I just hadn't been able to find the resources that I was looking for, which is really why I wrote the book. Um, I didn't really know what I needed to ask or what I needed to be careful about. And it turned out there were a lot of things that I should have been more careful about than I was. It was not an option that was presented. And she said to me, well, women are just happier if they have reconstruction. So I really had to sort of push her to say that's that's not me. That's not what I want. So what else? What else you got?
0: So, so much to understand here. And I want to get back to dense breasts, because I, mm. I as a dude, I, I've heard various. Things. I have heard ropey breasts. I've heard mm. various different terms. I, I I don't know what they mean. So I want to get back to that. But before there, you're clearly and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so you tell me, but my impression, having read your book, um, is that you're there's and you're nicer about it than I would have been, but <laughs> that you're pissed off that it was either these two choices. There was not this choice called flat and happy.
1: Yeah, no, I am a little pissed and why, off.
0: Why that. does that piss you off? Why, why, why is that upsetting to you? Why do you want that to be different?
1: Well, Because reconstruction, while uh, look, I want to be clear about this. It's a tremendous boon to somebody who wants to have breast mound reconstruction. And and I'll also tell you why I call it breast mound reconstruction and not just reconstruction. Um, For many, many women, that is a great way to be able to sort of move on from what's happened to them and to reconnect with their bodies. And I don't begrudge anyone that. But knowing that it was not for me. I learned in in retrospect um, that reconstruction is a very complicated and difficult process for a lot of women. It's not a one-and-done kind of surgery. Depending on the type of reconstruction that you choose, you could have to have anywhere from two to five or sometimes, you know, 10 or 12 surgeries to get to a point of being happy with your cosmetic outcome. And there's a very high risk of complications. It's like a 30% risk of having anything from infection to if, you know, if you're having implant reconstruction, capsular contracture, which is where the scar tissue kind of seizes up and you get this hard lump. So to know that there's this pressure on women to undergo a medical procedure that is not necessary and that many of them don't want. And I've heard a lot of stories at this point in my data gathering around this of women saying, yeah, no, I'm good. I'm just going to go flat. And doctors saying, no, no, you're so young or you're going to regret it. So that's what pisses me off, right? Like the, the, the lack of autonomy in that and the societal pressure to, to conform to a, a physical standard that is not at all about a woman's health or her preferences.
0: Yes. And the other question I have about this with the doctors sort of pushing you is, you maybe I'm stupid, but so you go through this, you have your breasts removed, and you decide you want to be flat. And if a few years down the road from now, for some reason, if you woke up and said, you know, for whatever, I don't care, whatever the reason is, mm. um, you wanted to do reconstruction. I'm assuming you, you could make that decision at any time. Could you not?
1: It's a little bit more complicated if you've gone completely flat. And, okay. and this might be a good time to do a very quick overview in case you know you're you're probably not that familiar with what reconstruction entails educate me so there's basically like i think there's an assumption that it's oh it's like augmentation people get implants all the time no big deal but reconstruction is not like augmentation because you've removed all of the breast tissue right like From an oncological standpoint, it's very important that you get rid of all of the breast tissue because that's where the cancer grows. So you're basically left with this envelope of skin. And the question is, what are you going to stick in there? So if you're doing um, an implant based surgery, and I should mention, by the way, that for the most part, you are not going to have a nipple. That's usually cut off because, again, that's a place where cancer is likely to grow. The nerves have been cut. Hold on, hold
0: on. Before you go there. Yeah. So, so the reason the nipple has to go in this situation Mm -hmm. is because if you left that, that could get be could be cancerous unto itself.
1: It could be, yeah. So it depends on the proximity of the cancer to the nipple and some other factors. So doctors more and more are trying to spare the nipple, but it's also worth pointing out that it's still been disconnected from its nerves. So it's not a functional nipple in any real sense. It's it's a decorative kind of a thing. Yes. Decorative sounds too demeaning, but it, it, you know yes. it's not...
0: A, it, it's aesthetic. Thing. It's not...
1: It's aesthetic, exactly. A, yes. That's the other a thing is, a, as
0: it. a side note, I recently got some new tattoos and My tattoo artist is Jeremy Swan. He's one of the top 50 tattoo Mm. artists in the country. He's an incredible human being. And one of the things that he does pro bono Mm -hmm. is he will tattoo nipples on women who have this. uh, And they're
1: incredible, right? I mean, like the Trompe leg kind of 3D amazing nipple tattoos that people are doing.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're not nipples, of course, but two of the new tattoos I have have a real (laughs) strong 3D quality to them. And it's really a legendary artist can do amazing work. And so, um, anyway, that's very inspiring, but I digress. Please keep going. Hmm.
1: Okay. Well, so you've got some skin left over. And so if you want to put an implant in there and you don't have the breast tissue there to support it, that is the way it would work with augmentation you have a couple of choices one is you can make sort of a sling out of a cellular dermal matrix which is basically like tissue that's been harvested from cadavers or pigs and cleaned up and they could make sort of a like a catapult sling out of that and stick the implant down there or what's more common is they say okay we're gonna just just gonna lift up your muscle from your rib cage and we're going to push that out we're going to use it what's called an expander so it's a, a kind of implant that can be injected with fluid so that it gradually increases in size and if you cut away the muscle and you stick that underneath and you gradually push the muscle off your chest wall and you stretch out the skin in order to make room for then you have a second surgery where they swap out the expander and they put in your your quote-unquote permanent implant because, of course, we know that's not a lifetime device. It lasts maybe 10 years, and then it will need to be swapped out. And then, you know, they can close you up, and now you've got this breast mound, which has no sensation and which um, is generally sort of cold to the touch but can look really great. Um, the other option is that they can use your own tissue. So they can take, let's say, belly extra um, tissue and and build a breast mount out of that sometimes they take muscle from other parts of your body like they can take muscle from your sort of back and shoulder and tunnel that underneath and use that muscle as the basis to create a breast mount so it's it's pretty intense surgery
0: and, and like you said earlier there there's likely multiple surgeries yeah on let's just call it phase one yeah. and if i heard you correctly and i think i've heard this before Breast implants need to get swapped out roughly every decade.
1: Yeah. About that. Assuming that they haven't ruptured.
0: Yeah. So if they're fine, they still need to get, uh, it's like a car battery. It doesn't last (laughs) forever. But the other thing I wonder is, you know, if you're a gal who's maybe in your sixties, when this happens and you decide to get the reconstruction, you now have to get the new upgrade, um, in your seventies, and then you have to yeah. upgrade again in your eighties, and and, so, and and so each, each time of
1: those surgeries is a bigger deal. The older you are, the, the anesthesia, less you
0: really want to go the, the, the whole thing, band. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Please keep yeah. going.
1: Okay, so to answer your original question, um, you can still pursue reconstruction if you've gone completely flat. But let's say that you're doing the implant expander type of reconstruction. Now you're having to push that skin out from zero, as opposed to already having an envelope of skin to work from. If you've had any kind of radiation, you've lost the elasticity in the skin. So that's no longer on the table. And then you can, in many cases, do some kind of autologous, you know, using your own tissue to build a new breast form, assuming that you've got the tissue there to work with in the first place. So you have to have enough spare flesh on you that you can build a breast out of
0: it. Excuse my silliness. But if your husband had a couple of beers uh, okay. extra and could spare some.
1: Could I use his? <laughs> That's a really interesting question because nobody has ever asked that question. It me, would be
0: funny to say my beer belly is in her boobs. <laughs> I
1: wonder if there would be like tissue rejection issues. I. I have never heard of anybody being a donor for somebody else's breast reconstruction. It's a really interesting idea.
0: I I, I don't know. I just thought I'd ask. Mm. So so you get this diagnosis. The doctor says mm. you have two choices. And how quickly did you come to a place, Kat, where you're like, I, I don't like either of these choices?
1: Pretty quickly. Um uh I can't be absolutely certain of this, but I think that the reason that I knew that going flat was an option was because I'm a Tig Notaro fan and Tig had done a comedy special that was very influential where she, you know, after she had gone through her whole cancer drama and she had gone flat, she did a stand-up special where she took off her shirt and did a big chunk of her her set topless, topless, which was totally badass. And then she also had a really wonderful TV show called One Mississippi, and there was a scene of her sort of confronting her flat chest in a mirror. And so I I knew that-
0: So she inspired you.
1: I think that on some level, I must have had that in my mind. Like, I don't know that I immediately went to, well, Tignataro did it, but I knew that that was an option. And so I started Googling. Now, what's scary about that is the first thing you find when you start Googling is all of the ways in which doctors have botched- flat closures on women's chests and it's truly horrifying what some women have been left with. So, you know, that rattled me a little bit, but I still, I had a pretty strong sense that for me it was not going to feel like an authentic choice, right? Like there was nothing about having a rebuilt, sensationless breast mound on my chest that made me think, oh, I'm going to feel more whole if I do that. And it just seemed like a lot of extra surgery. So it was a, it was a pretty easy choice for me in spite of the fact that my doctor was not super on board
0: with it. Now, for many of us, and of course, I, I, if it's not clear, I've never been a woman, um, but for many of us, our genitalia and our sexual organs, and, and, and I would assume for women, obviously, breasts are a lot more than just sexual. They're, uh, as a friend, I remember when a friend of mine first had his first baby, he came to me, he said, women are incredible. I said, yeah. <laughs> I said, but what do you mean? He goes, well, they fucking make people yeah. in their bodies. It's crazy, right? It's crazy. And then he said, "And then they use their bodies to feed the people Amen. that they fucking yeah. manufactured." Yeah. So, of course, breasts have multiple functions. Yeah. And of course, our society is is, is a is a boob obsessed society. I think that's a a, f- a fair statement, wouldn't you say? Oh, very much so. And so. There's all sorts of stuff around breasts, uh, femininity and sexuality and motherhood and fashion and all, all these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of desirability. course, desirability. Yeah. And of course, you're married to a person and that person married you with your uh, uh, yeah. dense breasts. <laughs> 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 and that's kind of how the package that he signed up for. And, and now the package is getting changed. And so there's a lot of complexity in this, is there not?
1: Oh yeah. So so
0: walk me through how you think about all, excuse me, all those piece parts. And if there's any other things I missed as you sort of put together this puzzle in your mind.
1: Yeah. There's a a funny story about, um, the conversations that Tony and I had around this topic, because when I first said to him, you know, I don't think I want to have reconstruction. He had a A reaction that surprised me. Now, as you know, my husband, so you know that he is deeply iconoclastic. He does not give one single fuck about, you know, sort of traditional gender paradigms, not at all. And so, the fact that he was not immediately like, "Yes, don't get reconstruction," kind of stung a little bit. I thought, "What? Have I have I missed something here? Like, why is he not?" on board with this now in retrospect what i realized was at late at night at three o'clock in the morning when i was online googling everything and finding out about this complication rate for reconstruction i was not sharing all of that with him so he did not have the same fact base to work from that i had Um, so you know we we had like a an awkward half week or so in which I was feeling unseen and uh, I think he was feeling like he wasn't sure exactly what he was supposed to say. And we finally had it out. We were, we were going to the theater. We were sitting in this Chinese restaurant in Times Square. And I said to him, okay, look, I feel like you reacted a certain way to this announcement of mine that I'm not having reconstruction. And I, I don't understand what your reaction is. And I, I need to understand where that's coming from. Like I, do you, are you concerned about me not having breasts? Is that a problem for you? And he said, oh, God, no, not at all. What I'm worried about is that if you don't have reconstruction and you walk around without breasts, you're going to be pissed off all the time that you are going to have this very visible reminder of breast cancer. And so to me, having reconstruction is a way of kind of putting that, and uh, you know, it's a really valid point, right? Like how do you put that behind you? You kind of rebuild and move on. But once I said to him, oh, okay, first of all, I'm not concerned about that at all. I don't think I'm gonna be pissed off about having breast cancer. But second of all, like that is not what reconstruction is. And I started sharing with him all that I had been learning. He was like, oh, that sucks. Okay, I get why you don't wanna do this. So definitely the communication around that turned out to be really important. Similar with my father, he was the other person who, when I told him, seemed really discomforted by that choice. Um, I think the problem was that I just hadn't told him any of the stuff that I knew at that point to help him kind of come to where I was. And so it was a a little bit of a bombshell. So I think the, the big takeaway there was I could have communicated in a much you know, you got a lot going on when you, you, you're you diagnosed. And so I don't, I'm not mad at myself for not having taken the time to gently lead people through my decision-making process. But in retrospect, I might have been a little gentler with it.
0: Yes. And, and in all fairness to the men in your life, it wasn't about them.
1: <laughs> Very true.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, maybe let me, and look, this might be hard, but I know for some women, their breasts are a huge part of their identity. Mm. I know for some women. The fact that they are known for being beautiful and in some cases known for having beautiful breasts, even if you haven't seen them naked, you can sort of get a pretty good idea. And I I have a dear friend, a woman who is an absolute angel on this earth and she's a beautiful woman and she's a woman like this and she's a woman that is known for having nice boobs Mm -hmm. and I've never seen them, but. You could yep. probably figure out that they're probably pretty awesome. I know her husband very well. And
1: <laughs> he vouches for them.
0: He, yeah. So th- here is a woman who is a beautiful woman, a successful woman, an incredible career, uh, an angel on this earth, an extraordinary wife.
1: Mm-hmm. And yet here we are talking about her boobs.
0: Yeah, Exactly. And her boobs. And of course, I've never been a woman, but they must be at least in part, part of her identity. Yeah. And she is now in recovery. She thought she was going to have to have them removed like you did. Uh, It turned out that that wasn't a necessary uh, move. So she had the the lumps removed. She went through the treatment afterwards. And so far, knock on wood, so good. There were some ramifications from the treatment that continue. But so far, so good on the cancer. Um, And as it was happening... She said to me, let's just cut him off.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm. And she meant Interesting. it.
0: Interesting. Yeah. This gal's a nurse, huh. uh, a head nurse, an extraordinary head nurse, huh. m- you know, multi-decade career. And uh, so she I,
1: knows something about bodies. She and knows what something they about bodies. Signify. Correct. Yeah.
0: And yeah. I think she loves her female body. Like, like I think a lot of women do. I, I love my male body. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. And. She was where you were before the option became a requirement to deal with. Yeah. And I know her husband very well. And I know exactly how he felt about it, which is how he felt is, I assume, the way Tony felt, which is I want you in my life. Yeah. And your breasts are wonderful, but I want you in my life. Yes. So walk me through the identity Part of being a woman, and and how much these things matter, and and the facing down the, I'm going to look in the mirror, and I'm not going to look the way I've looked my whole life.
1: Yeah, you know, I may be atypical in this. Um, I was not particularly attached emotionally. I mean, you know, physically, I was very attached to my breasts, but um, I was not that attached to having breasts as an idea. Um, they were fine nice breasts i took some pictures before the surgery just because i thought i might want to be able to refer back to these and i look at them and i go yeah those were nice boobs i had some nice boobs they were not my favorite body part i shouldn't quote woody allen because we know he's canceled but you know the whole my brain is my second favorite organ i think my brain is my favorite organ and i wonder in your friends in the example of your friend there is this culture around her boobs among the people, the men particularly, I'm going to say, who know her. I wonder whether for her, there might even have been some degree of relief in the idea of not being the object of people's gaze in that way. You know, having a really nice rack, if that's what you want to be known for, is great. If you want to be known for other things, it can actually be an impediment. So I, my own personal feeling of waking up after surgery and looking down and seeing, you know, that my chest had essentially been restored to what it looked like when I was eight, um, was, hey, nice. That looks fine. You know, even before the band-aids came off, I felt like, oh, I'm not going to have an issue with this. I did a lot of crying beforehand, because I thought that was what I was supposed to do. And I in the shower, I felt them, and I coddled them, and I said, I'm so sorry to them. And then um, they cut them off, <laughs> and I was done with the crying. It was just it was easy for me. As I said, I am probably not the typical woman when it comes to that. Um, it helps that Tony was also not that attached to them. Uh, there are other parts of my body. I'm just going to say that he preferred. I'll leave it at that. Still prefers. So, But this identity question, and I, I spent a lot of time, especially in the final chapter of my book, which is called the politics of reconstruction and it's basically about the patriarchy and why reconstruction has become the default option for women who are having mastectomy as opposed to just being one of the things that's on the menu this idea of women's bodies being their most valuable assets you know that that's the thing that that makes them worthwhile as humans is obviously pretty troubling to me. So I do understand that women can feel a, a real loss of identity if this has been a part of their body. And I also I, I'm you know, I'm going to say and I don't mean this at all in a like yeah, look at how great I am, but I'm a tiny person. Like I'm I'm a, just a small woman. And so losing my breasts did not cause me to look particularly disproportionate for some women who are built on a different scale than I am. That can be a much harder thing. Like, how am I going to dress myself now that I am completely out of proportion? Or I've always had this balance of, you know, having a big rack and now I'm, I'm a pair and how am I supposed to dress? So I, I have the privilege of not having had to deal with that aspect of things. It was a pretty easy transition.
0: And would it be fair to say, so how tall are you, Kat? 5'2". Five 5'2". Two. Five two. And uh, would it be fair to say you have sort of more of a trim kind of runners or endurance body, you know, looking, body. you're a fairly trim kind of a gal?
1: At the moment I am. I mean, I, one was of that my the friends referred to me in my 20s as being a pocket Venus. I was, I, when I had more weight on me, I was definitely a pretty curvaceous little thing. And I, I still have, you know, I carry some weight in my, in my. Belly, so I'm. I'm not. I'm not a runner by any stretch of the imagination, but I can sort of pull off the look of a pixie, you know. I am Just a little and.
0: And you grown. think maybe if you'd been more curvaceous and 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 so forth, uh, or for women with different body types, it would be more noticeable than it is with you.
1: Noticeable is an interesting point, right? Because there's wh- who's the noticer Is it me or is it the person observing me? Because. I will say, I don't think anybody notices that I'm flat. Uh, right after my surgery, I thought it it was like I had a, you know, a giant arrow pointing to my, <laughs> flashing, my flat chick. Flashing yeah, exactly. sign,
0: flat chick here.
1: <laughs> but if I didn't point it out to somebody, nobody, the, the most that happened was somebody who hadn't seen me in a long time and didn't know what had happened would say, oh, did you lose weight? I see. And I would say 2.2 pounds. <laughs> um, so... I, I think the noticing is very often an internal thing, you know, it's the woman herself who is looking in the mirror and feeling the absence more than it is a, a, an external viewer, even, you know, I hear about women going back to work and, and they haven't told their colleagues and nobody bats an eye. And this is not, you know, necessarily women who are tiny, women of all sizes. It's just not as it turns out not to be as big a deal as they fear it's going to be a lot of the time.
0: Yes, and of course, there are many women who don't have particularly large ones and, um, yep. you know, you don't think anything of I certainly don't. Right. And right. you see them in the grocery store, to your point, and you keep trying to find the Cheerios right. uh, or or in my case, the bourbon. Um, <laughs> so, so the external world looking at you, how, how long did it take you to realize that like, there wasn't a flashing sign. And for the most part, nobody could tell unless you told them.
1: I mean, it's definitely, it's an ongoing process and uh, I am still very aware of my flatness in the world, especially in summer In Mm. winter. uh, You know, when you're wearing sweaters and jackets and stuff and scarves, like I feel like I just slip right through crowds and I never think about it in summer when I'm showing a lot more skin Uh, I am more conscious still of, does anybody notice? But I also know that nobody is noticing, right? So I know that that's a a number that I'm doing on myself. And it's been, what, it's been three and a half years.
0: Three and a half years. Yeah. The other interesting thing is, you know, we can all be so self-conscious and we all think that people notice shit and nobody notices shit because we're all so focused on ourselves. Yes, absolutely. You know, for our new book, Snow Leopard, we did a deep analysis of the best-selling uh, nonfiction books and and the sort of the, I think there's six or seven mega categories. Mm. And the number one mega category is personal development, personal growth. Yeah. And then the number two mega category is personal finance. And so what it tells us is most human beings are very focused on the personal (laughs) Mm -hmm. right but that said you know what about i you know you want to put on a a a sundress that you like or some kind of a thing that shows your arms or maybe that would have a plunging or a more plunging neckline or a bathing suit at the beach or Mm. you know the new lululemon i don't know what that all you gals wear when you go and (laughs) work out and run around town and so forth and so on there's a lot of clothing particularly in the summer you live in new york yes So summers are hot in New York and and so uh, and and you're a beautiful woman. And so I'm sure you have a wonderful wardrobe. And and so walk me through sort of that piece, the summer piece.
1: Yeah, I have a I have a whole chapter in the book that's dedicated to this question of how how to start thinking about how to dress yourself. And uh, uh, the bathing suit, you mentioned that that is the worst thing for a, a flatty to try to figure out. And unfortunately, I, I mean, I shouldn't say unfortunately, like it was enormously fortunate. We had a trip planned for, so I had my surgery in April and in June, we were going to be going to this island this, in Mexico called Isla Mujeres that has um, whale watching, um, uh, whale sharks whale shark, um, watching trips. And I've been wanting to see whale sharks up close and personal forever. So we were not canceling that trip, but I knew that the bathing suits that I had were not going to cut it. And so just like within a, a, maybe two month span after the surgery, I had to go and start trying on bathing suits, which is physically incredibly painful. If you're still trying to recover your range of motion after a mastectomy and incredibly hard emotionally because everything looks like shit on you until you figure out what looks good on you so that first bathing suit shopping expedition it was poor tony was sitting there outside the the changing room and i oh yeah just gruesome um i mostly laughed rather than crying um but everything looked terrible and then months later I literally, I was in Target. I walked past a rack of bathing suits. I went, oh, that would look cute on me. I picked it up. I went into the changing room. I tried it on. It looked awesome on me. And I took it home, right? So there is there is definitely a strong learning curve there. Um, the thing about summer clothes I have found is that there are all of these styles that I haven't been able to wear since I was an eight-year-old girl when I didn't have boobs because there's things like spaghetti straps or halter tops where I look at that now and I think, How does a person who needs to wear a bra even wear that style? That makes no sense at all. But now I can, you know, I I rock with some things, a little skinny, backless things. You have some tricks that you can try. Like if there is a plunging neckline on something that you absolutely love, you maybe try turning it around backwards. So it's now a plunging back V Um, because it's true. I, I do not love showing the scar because my scar goes all the way from my armpits to the very center of my chest there's like an inch right over my sternum that is not cut open and then the rest of it is incision line and it's you know it's been as i said three and a half years it's an, it's clean it's it's white now it's not like a glaring red or anything and you'll definitely see it under my arms if i'm wearing something that's got like a big armhole or something like that but i actually love my new wardrobe it's really fun to wear and i i also, as I said, I am not a runner, but I know your Mulu 11 question, women who go flat and who are runners are like, this is the best thing ever because there is no bouncing. There's no to. Added- yeah, it's great. So there's, <laughs> there's actually lots of advantages.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Thank you for that. Mm. Now, let me ask you. Uh, and again, I don't want to piss you off or Tony off or go anywhere you don't want to go. Uh, So, feel free to skate by this question. I I am. So, tell me, tell me if you like how, if at all, it has changed uh, your sex life.
1: Okay. Well, just to answer your question, it has changed our sex life surprisingly little since, as I said, they were never my favorite part of my anatomy and they were not his favorite part of my anatomy. So, it definitely took some conversations around what I was willing to what I was okay with in terms of touch um, and where there is still sensitivity and where there is not. I mean along the incision line, I'm completely numb because again the the nerves have been cut. The difference between my chest and a reconstructed chest breast mound is that I just have this little thin band of of insensate tissue, whereas the entire envelope of the breast is insensitive. So you have this much larger awareness of the lack of sensation if you have reconstruction. I I should just interject there. Um, There are techniques, sensation sparing techniques that some doctors have been exploring. It's not very common. It's not something that every woman is a candidate for but people are trying to find ways to restore or preserve sensation with mastectomy. It can't be done with a flat closure because the, you know, the, the nerves that you would need to preserve have, have been cut away. But um, right now that is, if, if that is ever going to become a a, a real going concern, it is not there at this moment. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely for some women really crushing. But I I do want to reiterate that the question of going flat or not going flat has very little to do with that because it's really about, do you still have your own breasts that have sensation or do you not? There's the visual aspect of it. And for, you know, if you have a male partner, I shouldn't say male partner, a partner who is very into the visual of your breasts, then... It is possible that having reconstruction will be beneficial to your sex life, but it's not because you will experience pleasurable sensations in those breasts. It's purely the the pleasure of the visual.
0: I see. How, if at all, has it affected your career, Kat?
1: No, I don't think it's affected my career one bit. I mean, you know i I've been working for the same company for. 23 years, because I have very little ambition. And, um,
0: <laughs> I find that a little hard to believe, but okay. <laughs> um,
1: They're good to me. And I, I will say they were extraordinarily good to me when I was diagnosed and, you know, the, the, my colleagues, I showed up the day, of my, the day before my surgery. So the last day I was in the office I, in the morning, and I suddenly started noticing that there were little pink ribbons on everybody's shirt. Like it didn't dawn on me right away. And then I suddenly thought, oh, that's for me. Um, And, you know, like I got all the time off that I needed. Um, So uh, my company was really great to me. I would say that what it did do is it gave me another interesting side hustle. So I had written a young adult novel um, several years ago. It was published by Scholastic. Uh, I was trying to work on a a sequel to that when I was diagnosed. And suddenly, you know, it was a hard left turn of, oh, I have something (laughs) much more important that I need to write about now. So, um, yeah. So writing the book became my other career.
0: So if I'm thank you. So if I'm connecting some dots here, um, you were in a situation where you had an employer and colleagues who sound like they were very supportive and, and yeah, totally. would you say loving even?
1: Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I'll tell you a funny story. When I had the lump in my breast still before the surgery, I said to, cause I work in a heavily female industry. Um, uh, I said to a few of my closest colleagues, listen, I didn't know what this thing felt like. I've always been freaked out by breast self-exam because, you know, I didn't know what I was looking for and I had those lumpy breasts and I, I was always finding things and going, is that, a bad lump? is that a bad lump? What is that? Now I know exactly what this thing feels like. Uh, please don't feel any pressure, but if you would like, I would be very happy to take you into a closet and let you feel my breast. And so, you know, we went into the the nursing mother's room, and uh, you know, I let everybody sort of give it a good feel, so they would know what they were looking for. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted you again.
0: No, you interrupt the shit out of me, a- and that's an amazing thing that you would be willing to do that and be that vulnerable. I mean, our bodies are intimate. If you are having uh, arm cancer, mm-hmm. or right now, I have a dear friend who's dealing with a a horrible. Uh, very uh, unusual brain enhancer. Yeah. But there's a level of intimacy yeah. with breasts or with prostate that is, that is different. Uh, yeah. What you just described is something that most people, I think, well, I can't speak, but who knows it would, you could understand that most people might not want their colleagues to come into the nursing room and feel their boobies to, to understand yeah. what a cancer lump feels like as opposed to just something that's benign.
1: Yeah. I mean, when I tell you that I've worked for this company for 23 years, like many of those colleagues have worked for 10 years or more with me. So they are they are more than colleagues. Sure. They're also friends. But yes, I mean, it is definitely. If I hadn't been stabbed with a whole bunch of needles and and been dealing with the medical profession around these anyway, then I might have been in a different place. But at this right. point, it was almost more like a, a scientific curiosity. A
0: clinical... Right. Yes.
1: There was nothing sexual about my boobs in that moment.
0: <laughs> I can imagine. Um, yeah. Or I can only imagine. And then, look, I know Tony well enough to imagine how he behaved throughout this. So maybe describe for me a little bit about um, your relationship with Tony as all of this is happening.
1: Yeah. Oh, that man is a prince. Um, so I don't think that men certainly in the United States, but I think in general, are necessarily trained to be caregivers, right? Like it's just not part of the paradigm. And even a man who is as enlightened about gender roles as my husband is, like we still in some ways have a fairly traditional marriage. I do more of the caretaking. I do the cooking and the shopping and he does the tech stuff, for instance. Right. And that way we are we are very aligned with the traditions of of gender breakdowns. So I wasn't sure what to expect. And actually, I, I alluded to the fact that I had had this other cancer when I was in my 20s. At that time, I went home to Rhode Island and my mother cared for me, even though Tony and I were already together. And I think he was a little hurt by that, right? He was like, why do you need your mother to care for you? I'm right here. And I just felt like my mom knows how to care for me. Now we're much older and I didn't want my mom caring for me. I wanted my husband caring for me, but I wasn't sure how he would do it that. Because there's stuff like you come home and you've got these drains. So there are these long tubes that are inside your body and then sticking out underneath your arms. And there's like a couple feet of tubing and then there's a bulb at the end. And that's because there's going to be fluid that's being given off by the, the the wound in your body for some period of time. And you don't want that to build up inside of your body. So it needs to be pulled out and the those bulbs create a, a suction, a vacuum, so that the fluid moves out of them. And you have to track how much fluid is coming out on a daily basis. Because at a certain point, you can have the drains pulled. And, and for every woman who has undergone mastectomy, like the day you have your drains pulled is the best day ever. It's so liberating. So you're really keeping a close eye on that. And so Tony, every day, was, you know, like, my drains and pouring them into a little measuring cup and recording the amounts. And then at a certain point, it was time to take off the bandages. <laughs> we sat here in this room across from each other on these two chairs. And he very painstakingly with like a little alcohol swab took off because I I was just covered in this adhesive tape and it didn't want to come off. And so for like 45 minutes, he was just carefully, carefully removing each of these little pieces of tape and showering me. I mean, I was completely uh, unable to fend for myself for several days. And he did such a beautiful job of it. And we also laughed our asses off, which is what we tend to do when we are in a in a sort of uh, stressful situation. So uh, I don't question that it brought us closer together. I also know that I was very, very fortunate because that's not everybody's story.
0: Yes. I can only imagine if you're uh, a woman going through this without a committed partner. Or with
1: an, yeah. With an unsupportive partner with an unsupportive
0: partner um, yeah. or with no partner. Yeah. Uh, and maybe no, you know, close friend or brother or sister or parents nearby, like uh, going through this by oneself or even if you weren't technically by yourself, if it felt like you were by yourself, yeah. uh, I would imagine would be a, a, a much worse situation.
1: Yeah. And actually, on the, on the topic of unsupportive partner, I should also say that the I, the fact that Tony said, whatever you want to do in terms of reconstruction or not reconstruction, I am 100 percent behind you. There are a, a lot of women whose partners basically say to them, if you don't have reconstruction, I'm leaving you. Like, that's not an uncomfortable. P- people
0: word. say that? Yeah. Yeah. And it happens.
1: Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Or whose mother-in-law or whose whatever says to them, oh, well, you have to have reconstruction. You don't want to look like a freak, right? I mean, not everybody is <laughs> as enlightened about this as you'd like to think. Wow. Yeah.
0: Wow, 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 wow. And then the other thing, uh, if I circle back to Jeremy for a second, the tattoo artist, he mm-hmm. has also tattooed many women who have gone flat, who decided that they wanted to do something tattoo-wise yes. in that in that area. Mm-hmm. And I've seen some of his work there, and it's really, I mean, some incredibly. I mean, when you have a for, first of all, do you have any tattoos, Kent?
1: I do not. You do not. I do not.
0: There's a very big difference between walking into a tattoo parlor on the street corner where where they can see you now versus Mm -hmm. like a master. Right. I always tell people this is like if the tattoo artist you want to uh, tattoo, you can see you anytime soon. It's a very big problem. Right. It takes a long time to go see Jeremy. But that said, I've seen some beautiful work that he and others have done for flat chested women to provide them with something. New something, you know, piece of art on their body, uh, as a turning of the page. And as somebody with a lot of tattoos, you know, there's no question about it when you tattoo yourself, you are doing body modification, yeah, and there's a reason you're doing it.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: and so has that ever occurred to you by any chance? Or, and
1: oh, sure, yeah, and what I do actually, you think? I had a plan in case I decided I, I wanted to go down this path when I was first. Thinking about going flat, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to get like two scallop shells. Um, or that I was talking with my friend, Monica, and she said, no, no, I've got it. You're going to get two blue-footed boobies. And I... I started doing the the photo research and it was making me laugh so hard that I was like, "Oh my god, I have to do this because every put time boobies I look on at myself, my boobies, <laughs> I'm going to be, right? I'm going uh, to send people, total strangers on the street, "I got the finest pair of boobies on the east coast," right? Like, <laughs> woo. Um,
0: and think but, of the think of the party trick. Want to see my boobies? Woohoo.
1: Right. Woo. Um ultimately, I was thinking of that as a way of making myself feel better if looking at my chest made me feel sad and it didn't, it made me feel triumphant. So the idea of getting a tattoo didn't really seem necessary anymore, but uh, yeah, I mean, I've seen some gorgeous ones and, you know, I particularly like it when somebody does something that's really personally meaningful, you know, and they find a way to, uh, there was one woman who had tattoos already Um, she she was somebody who explanted. So she had had implant-based reconstruction and the implants were a nightmare for her. So she had them removed. But when she had those reconstructed breasts, she had had tattoo work done on them. And now as she was removing them, she got a surgeon who was wonderful and who said, I'm gonna do the incision in such a way that I can preserve parts of the tattoo that you'll be able to work with which is really rare. And then she was able to sort of build on that. So I I really like it when people do things that, that give them that sense of reclaiming their body of, of, of completing something. Um, I'm, I'm in no way opposed to it. It's just not something that I felt I needed for myself.
0: Yes. And I wonder, uh, have you spoken to any women uh, that have maybe expressed this for me, my tattoos. And of course they're not done uh, to, to cover a situation like this. Right. Um, they're just there. Cause I want them period, but all of them mean something to me mm. and, and they are, this may sound a little corny, but they are part of a becoming process. Mm. You know, when you decide that you, something is not part of you mm-hmm. and you now want to make it a permanent part of you, an old friend of mine used to say that you know that my tattoos were essentially just ripping or stripping down to what was really me, huh. and I thought that was an interesting uh, assessment and and I relate to that that they 're part of uh, personal self expression and it 's a huge one because it 's on my body forever. And so I wonder if any women um, that you know or have spoken to since you wrote your book or what have you have expressed sort of this almost sense of by putting art on myself, I'm sort of becoming the person that I think I am or that I want to be.
1: I mean, off the top of my head, I'm not sure that that specific idea is one that's been expressed, but it is, it is interesting. And I, may I, may I turn this around on you? Would you tell me more about what, the image was that you chose for your very first tattoo and why?
0: Yeah. My first tattoo was on my left uh, leg at my, um, and it's a band. So it's around my shin and calf around the whole leg. And it is a band that has mountains and waves in it. Hmm. And so it was an expression of the love that my family, my father uh, have given me for the outdoors, and I live in California, as you know, yeah. and the ability to go play in the ocean and to go to the Sierras and be in the mountains. And uh, of course, I live in Santa Cruz; the ocean's right there. And yeah. so, for me, being in mountains or being around water, particularly the ocean, is a very peaceful place with amazing memories and, and new memories, yeah. hopefully, to come. And so, I wanted to, I wanted to recognize the power and the connection to friends and family that mountains and waves represented.
1: Yeah. And I guess my question is, okay, this is maybe a a dopey analogy, but we own a lot of art all over our apartment. And when you first buy a piece of art, you're so aware of it and you look at it every morning lovingly. And you think about, Oh, the joy that it is giving you. And then over time you become less and less aware of it. You have to remind yourself to look at it. So with a tattoo, when it's on your body, does that same thing happen? Does it just become part of the wallpaper and you you stop remembering to to connect it to a a sense of self?
0: Uh, For the most part, yes. So, you know, you think about getting out of the shower. Yeah, and so I'm tattooed. Uh, I have partial sleeves on both arms. I have tattoos on my chest. I have a tattoo on my back. And so, when you get out of the shower and you're getting ready for your day, and you're toweling off, and you're about to brush your teeth or whatever the things you're doing in your routine, and you see yourself naked in the mirror, and you just towel off and you keep going, and I don't really think of, of it. Yeah. The new ones, of course, you notice me for some time. Yeah. Uh, But then they just just they're part of you and you you notice them and don't notice them the way you notice and don't notice your own eyes or your own nose.
1: And I imagine other people noticing them is part of your noticing. Right. Like if other people didn't notice them, you would probably be less likely to be aware of them yourself. Right.
0: I think in my case, (laughs) no, because I live in you know, I live in a beach town where like it, it feels like. Everybody has a tattoo. So you sort of stand out a little bit more if you don't have a tattoo. Mm. And, you know, there's lots of dudes with my hairdo these days. And so around Mm. here, I'm just another asshole, bald dude with tattoos. So it's not. Mm. Now, what does happen on a reasonable basis is, you know, somebody will say to me, oh, you know, your tattoos are beautiful or Yeah. yeah, they want to hear the story or they see like I just two of the new tattoos. I got one's a butterfly and one's a hummingbird. And they're there for very potent powerful reasons they represent people who aren't here anymore Mm. and butterflies and hummingbirds are not things you normally see on a six foot 200 pound bald dude you know so there's certain it's not a
1: skull with a snake coming out of the mouth
0: (laughs) correct although i i have a sugar skull no snake but um (laughs) yeah i mean a pirate i'm a pirate so i have some piratey shit Mm. going on too um so yeah people when somebody says to you oh that's a beautiful tattoo or i love your butterfly or you know, and, and sometimes they'll ask because people look, you know, when you see somebody with tattoos, you know, who got tattoo 47 in the book right. versus somebody who got a custom tattoo that really means something that was yeah. put there by a, a no bullshit artist. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, where I live, nobody says anything to me. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So they're really just there for me. Yeah. Although I will tell you, this is funny how it, we talked about identity earlier ago. So um of course, you know that uh, today in November, uh, many try to encourage men to grow a beard or a mustache for Movember right. to bring awareness to cancer for men. Yeah. And I don't do it every year, but uh, I do from time to time grow uh, normally a goatee. I, I have a little bit of one now. Anyway, one year, cat, I grew just the handlebar mustache. Oh. So not a goatee, but, but the mustache uh. that comes down around the lips like that, uh-huh. like a biker mustache, like all yeah. the way to here. Yeah. And when you're six foot, 200 pounds, you have you have black and white tattoos on you and then you add that.
1: Yeah. People clear a path.
0: People treat you very different. Like it's it's like you're a whole other thing. It was so bizarre. I don't know if I'll do it again. Maybe once or twice for fun, but it just one addition to the look and like, no, people are afraid you're going to beat the shit out of them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It says a lot about the the inferences that we make and the little heuristics right like the rules of thumb that we apply to our everyday judgments because we're too lazy to actually investigate every individual situation so we go oh yes. okay if he's got that mustache then he's trouble and i stay away from him and you know those things w- will serve you in some circumstances so yes
0: yeah. And I am not trouble unless something horrible mm-hmm. is going on. And then I'm trouble for the person creating the horrible. But other than that, yeah. I'm I'm a Fair I'm, enough. I'm a <laughs> I'm, I'm a, a puff. I'm yeah. So I I experience your work through a lens of a missionary. That is to say, mm. you didn't write this book to make money. Oh
1: God,
0: no. <laughs> yeah. You you wrote this book because there was a missing in the world that yeah. And the sense I get clearly is there was a missing that you were looking for that you couldn't find. You went through this and you said, this missing doesn't work for me. And to quote the big Lebowski, this aggression will not stand, man. And so <laughs> like all legendary creators, like all legendary entrepreneurs, you experience this missing. You mm-hmm. don't want it to be there for others. And so you go on this mission. And in, in your case, you write this book. Yeah. Is that, did I get it? Is that oh, accurate? 100%.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Look, writing a book, as you know, is a fuck ton of work.
0: Fuck ton. And
1: you only take that on if you feel with absolute conviction that it needs to exist. Now, the fact that I chose to write this book, and by the way, I I should mention, I had two collaborators. So I have a, a breast surgeon named Camelia Lawrence, who works out of the Hartford Hospital System. And I have a licensed clinical social worker named Wendy Myers, who works out of Pittsburgh. And I brought them on board because who the fuck am I to write this book about breast cancer surgery, right? Like it's, there's a ton of technical information and also sort of the emotional side of things where I didn't want this just to be about my experience. I wanted this to be a tool that was going to be useful for a broad range of women with a broad, I should say people, not just women, because it's not only people who identify with as women who have breast cancer, who undergo mastectomy. Um, so yeah it was absolutely mission driven and if I had thought that anybody else was going to do it i wouldn 't have done it because it is a lot of work and i 'm um, glad that nobody else had done it because i 'm really proud of this book. I think it is a beautiful book, and I think it is a useful book so uh, it 's fortunate that i you know I got there first, I guess. Um yes. but yes, I wouldn't have written it for any other reason.
0: Yes. And it comes across powerfully. Mm-hmm. Um and I think it was legendary that you brought in medical professionals because what you did then is you turned it from, you know, a journal, which might have been inspiring and instructive, right. but one yeah. person's journey. Yep. You took that one person's journey and by including them you turned it into a manual as well as an inspiration to navigating some of these very, very tough decisions.
1: Yeah. I didn't want this to be about me. And I also, I interviewed 16, I think other women Mm -hmm. who had had a whole bunch of different kinds of experiences, women who had had implant based and then explanted women who developed breast implant illness and had a whole journey Mm -hmm. with that women who did prophylactic mastectomy because they had BRCA mutations uh just you know a whole bunch of di- one yes. woman who was very unhappy with her results right i didn't want it all to just be sunshine and rainbows i'm ha- happily flat but not everyone is so i definitely took very seriously this idea of this is not uh, a moment for personal self-expression this is about how do i make this a useful tool for as many people as possible
0: Yes. And a lot of writers get confused about that. I mean, one of the things that we discovered in our um, category science research for uh, Snow Leopard was that the top two books are personal books and that therefore, if you're writing nonfiction, a smart lens to have is make the reader, the hero, not the writer.
1: It's about you. It's not about me. Yes. Yes. 100%.
0: Now you had cancer as a younger woman. You're Mm -hmm. three years or so post this whole procedure. My latest
1: episode. Yeah.
0: And again if this is too much let me know but what does it mean for you vis-a-vis cancer going forward do you know?
1: Mm, I mean, I it seems fairly clear that I have a familial I'm my father is Ashkenazi Jewish so there is a lot of canceriness in his family that does not show up as any particular genetic mutation it's just there. Um so Right now, as far as I know, you know, I'm on hormone therapy. I didn't have to do chemo. I was very fortunate. Um, as far as I know, I'm in great shape, and we will continue to monitor. And, um, you know, my hope is that I'm done with breast cancer. There is, a, you know, there is a chance of recurrence, um, and that's something that I have to watch out for, um, as do all humans. So.
0: Yes, and uh, on
1: particularly.
0: having had some very big, deep heart to heart conversations with with dear friends over the last couple of years, breast cancer, prostate cancer, brain cancer and, and, and a few others yeah. in almost every case, even even in the cases where the likelihood of it causing their death in the immediate term was very low. But in every case, you know, over a couple of beers when you really get into it men and women have shared with me, there is no way around this fucking shit. When you get this, it forces you to deal with your own mortality in a way that at least the folks that I've shared this with in in their lives say they haven't never had to deal with it in quite that way before. And so share with me what, if any, uh, both cancers and now where you are in your life, kind of what this means in your relationship with yourself as it relates to your own mortality.
1: Hmm. I'd love to say that this had made me this incredibly seize the day, kind of, you know, I'm, I'm going to live my life to the fullest. And We have done some things, you know, for instance, we had always fantasized about spending a lot of time in Iceland. And that was not really a possibility because we both had jobs and then COVID came along and you could work from other places. And so we said, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to go spend the summer in Iceland. And we've done that two years in a row now, um, you know, spending a couple months, there just living and, and enjoying the, the Iceland of it all. Um, so, you know, there are things like that, that I've done that I guess I might not have taken as seriously as a mission if, um, if it had not been for the cancer, but I can't say that I, maybe it's a, a lack of self-awareness or I, you know, I'm just one of those people who kind of floats on the surface that could be. Um, I, I cannot say that it has radically transformed the way I live my life. As I said, I'm still in the same job. I'm still with the same husband. I have my same friends. I go to the theater. I live in the same city. Um, because those are all for the most part, things that I like, Uh, you know, I'm, I guess, again, privileged in that I can look at my life and for the most part, say I'm good with that.
0: And so generally pre- uh, breast cancer you liked your life and you and Tony yeah. were doing your thing and uh, I know enough to know that he's had a wonderful career and sounds like you have as well and you're doing your life and so maybe you get serious about doing a few things that were on your bucket list that for whatever right. reason you weren't getting to but for the most there was not this big sort of oh and then all these things changed.
1: I mean I certainly wasn't somebody who looked at my life and went oh shit I cannot continue like this I must get rid of this husband or I must get rid of this job or any of that yeah you know, I, I, I had been sort of The things that were not working for me, I had already been working on eradicating before that.
0: Yes. Now, in completion, you know, if there were a few things that you really uh, wanted um, people to get from your work and from from this conversation about whether you're uh, a person that has a diagnosis like this or whether you're a person that loves somebody with a diagnosis like this. What are the really big learnings, both from yourself, as well as the docs and the interviews? And, you know, what would you like to leave people with?
1: Yeah. All right. Well, so starting with the patient side of things, I I would emphasize the absolute critical importance of self-advocacy. So there is a real tendency, and I think it is even stronger in women than it is in men, but we all have it, to look at a person wearing a white coat and to think, well, they know best. And this is their area of expertise, and I am just going to do what they tell me to do. And that is just not going to yield the best possible results. There's so much bureaucracy, and there's so much time pressure in the medical profession, and you can easily slip through the cracks. And doctors can make all kinds of assumptions around what 's best for you that may not align with your own values, so for instance, a doctor telling me women are just happier if they 're going to have reconstruction well i'm some women may that is not true for me
0: so that's self advocacy number one yeah, yeah number one
1: yeah, speaking to allies, I would say that the the most important thing is to not allow your own Presuppositions to fall onto the person who is going through this, right? Like, if you have a bias in favor of something, or if you think they should do something, you have to be very careful about the way you present that information to them so that it doesn't come across as you telling them how to live their lives. Figure out how to be supportive of their decisions. If you don't agree with their decisions, then figure out whether there's a way within your relationship that you can have that conversation without you imposing your feelings on them. Um, Yeah. Be supportive.
0: You know, it's interesting on that one. In this case, it's not a cancer or health related issue, but there's somebody in my life who I love dearly, who's an extraordinary human being. And of late, um, this person has made a few decisions that I think are really, Mm -hmm. really ill-advised. And I expressed that. and. I tried to do it lovingly. Maybe I fucked up, but it did not go very well. Yeah, it's hard. And, and I love this person dearly and I'm disappointed with what this person has been doing uh, Mm. very much. So, and I think has damaged others potentially as a result of some behavior Mm. that said, you know, I had to come to a place where I said, well, this is a very good person. This is a person who shows extraordinary judgment. This is a person who gives a fuck about themselves and others and their family. Hmm. And this is a person who's been going through some hard times and is trying to do the best they can. And I just had this moment coming out of the disappointment and anger, not anger, anger, but I think you know what I mean, where I just said, you know what? I got to cut them some slack. Frustration. I got to cut them some slack. It's their life. I know they're a good person. They're not fucking things up. They're just not doing it the way I think it would be most powerful and just sort of let it go. Yeah. And ever since then, my relationship with this person is fine. And it's Mm -hmm. interesting how, you know, uh, we mirror each other because this person's behavior towards me has gone to a deeper level since I just surrendered my fucking Mm -hmm. judgments.
1: And did you do that in a way that was acknowledged or did you just allow it to happen? And we never talked about it again. I just let
0: it happen. This is a person who's, Uh, very introverted and not particularly wanting to talk about general things like this. And I would have spoken to this person about it if I couldn't resolve it in my own mind, but I did. And it became, and this person made it very clear to me that it was all good now. So, Hmm. so anyway, my point is that radical acceptance and, and trying to find a way To not be judgmental, particularly with somebody who you know is a great person, even if you think they're not doing the right thing. So there's so there's self-advocacy for the allies. There's find a way to be radically supportive. Yep. And then uh, anything else, Kat?
1: No, I think that covers it.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I think what you've done here is incredibly courageous and incredibly laudable. And I think you've given a gift to, uh, uh, women and men and families.
1: Well, Chris, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity to, to reach a very different audience than I would be able to on my own. So,
0: well, you're very welcome. I, you know, it's funny. I never thought this was going to happen, but you know, a while back now, you know, when we, when we broke the top 200 on Apple iTunes, it was hard to deny that we had a podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh we haven't spent a lot of time there, by the way, <laughs> but we have been in, you know, I think we you know and we've been number one on the business charts and those sorts of things. But anyway, uh I did have this aha that was like, Wow, if the good Lord gave me a fucking platform,
1: hmm.
0: I-, I don't work for anybody. Right. I can do whatever I want and what I shall I do with that I can platform? do anything I want. Yeah. And I, you know, God bless Tony because I saw him posting on Facebook about yeah. you and your book.
1: Yeah, he's been tremendous about He's my my best unpaid PR he's person. He's legendary
0: yeah. on PR. And I yeah. saw that and I downloaded your book and just started to skim through it and so forth. And then I sent him a note and said, do you think there's any way Kat would come and have this conversation with me? And here we are.
1: Yeah. Well, it took us a couple of months to get there. Yeah. Very, very, very happy to have met you after all of these years and hearing your name in our, in our apartment. And um, really really appreciate this opportunity well
0: please give tony a big kiss on the lips for me I shall, <laughs> and a big hug and uh and god bless you both cat and uh you're welcome back anytime
1: oh thanks chris
0: thank you well there she is the legendary cat van dam her new book is out and it is fantastic it's called flat and happy and i highly highly recommend it also, if you appreciate this podcast, please show your appreciation by sharing these dialogues with your friends and colleagues and anybody that you love and respect. And if you know somebody who's going through a tough time and maybe even cancer, then Cat's message may be incredibly important to them and it may be a giant gift for you to share Cat with them. As always, we appreciate your social media thoughts, your shares, your tweets, your LinkedIn posts, and all of that good stuff. I also want to tell you that we have some legendary episodes coming soon, so I'd encourage you to subscribe to slash follow this oddcast on your podcast player of choice. Legendary CMO and venture capitalist Bruce Cleveland. And Pat Hyben is coming. He's the author of something called The Quitter's Manifesto that I think you'll find fascinating. And many, many more legendary guests. So subscribe to and follow. Follow your different right now. All right. We would like to thank you. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. We deeply appreciate it. Our friends at bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant. If you want an assistant that's a real human being, that's a person empowered by technology who will take a great who uh, will take great care of you, visit bottleneck.online today. The world's first dedicated distant assistant. Our friends at A-T-R-E.NET, A-T-R-E.net will build you a legendary B2B website if you're a Silicon Valley company. And you want to do a rapid relaunch of your website, maybe spruce things up, drive some revenue, go to A-T-R-E dot N-E-T. And don't forget, my friends at Lomi, L-O-M-I dot com. That's Lomi dot com. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Podcast Network. And we would love it if you shared the shit out of it. It does contain content known to the state of California to cause radically different thinking. And please do not make any decisions based on anything you heard in this podcast, without talking to your doctor, lawyer, accountant, shaman, mystic, and of course, category designer. All rights do remain perturbed. We're produced and edited by the goat, Jason DeFilippo. And I need to tell you something fun about Jason DeFilippo. If you are a Category Pirates uh, reader and subscriber, Jason has just decided to join us to be the official audio book, audio voice of Category Pirates. You see, we produce so much at Category Pirates, I can't keep up with it myself, and I need help. And there's nobody that me, Cole, and Eddie could think of to, uh, to jump in and lend his voice to Category Pirates than Jason DeFilippo, Sarah Knox and Jamie J. do legendary technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Go to Lockhead.com today and subscribe to Category Pirates. Show notes by GM Simon. The Bobas Brothers, EX and RJ do our web development, and Cedric Birost does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accountants are three balance sheets to the win. Don't forget that Tom Waits was right. Listen to the Ramones. Christopher Reeve reminds us, once you choose hope, anything is possible. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Vladimir Putin. Sorry, Vladdy, we just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and of course, two are together again. Follow your different.